Listener Production. Lisa Wilkinson has lived most of her life in the public eye. At age just 21, she became editor of Dolly Magazine before going on to edit Clio Magazine. And she was a regular on red carpets and television screens. Wilkinson's star rose to the highest heights of Aussie media when she was named host of the Today Show. I know that a career seems like a giant question mark right now. Air hostess, teacher, secretary, journalist. Well, I have good news, but you will have to work hard. When opportunity comes your way, recognise it, back yourself and run with it. When others see promise in you, believe it. It's then that you will fly. At the time, she was Carl Stefanovic's fifth co-host in a little over two years. But Wilkinson bucked the trend and made the job stick. Now co-host of The Project on Channel 10 and with a new autobiography in bookstores, Wilkinson remains at the top of her media game. I spoke to her during what was a very busy week in Australian politics about television, feminism, working hard and making it to the top. But sitting there instead of a restaurant was the whirring blades attached to the Channel 9 helicopter, ready and waiting, I discovered, to whisk me down to Mr Packer's summer residence at Palm Beach. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way where Tate McGregor joins us to recommend what to watch, see, listen, do, cook this weekend. But first, here is my chat with Lisa Wilkinson. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. You are a really well-respected and loved figure on the Australian news and media landscape, but my perception has always been that you are a reasonably private person. So when it comes to your personal life, what prompted you to write a memoir? I can't say that I ever intended to, Jamila. I was given the enormous honour of being asked to deliver the Andrew Ollie Memorial Media Lecture back in 2013, an offer that when it came to me, I told no one, least of all my husband about, because he's always been my greatest supporter and champion, and I knew he would have said to me, for Christ's sake, of course you say yes, but it is no small thing to be asked to stand up in a room full of your peers and deliver something that hasn't been delivered before and prompts a conversation and adds to the conversations that are going on or perhaps raises a topic that isn't being talked about enough. My first reaction, apart from, well, I'll never say yes to that, and secondly, I won't tell Pete that I'm not going to say yes to that, my third reaction was, I don't know that I have anything to say that hasn't been said before. But that was back in the days when I was co-hosting the Today Show. And it's extraordinary the amount of thinking you do at 3am in the shower. And over the course of um, the following week, I just started to think about a few things that was sort of bugging me. It had bugged me the way Julia Gillard had been dealt with as our first female Prime Minister. It was bugging me how women's magazines always pitted women against each other. It was concerning me what social media was doing to young women. And over the course of a week, 
this theme started to emerge and I thought, damn it, I think I actually do have something to say. And I, I haven't heard anyone in the media, male or female, really address this issue, but also the way that the media itself was moving towards clickbait, Yeah, which as a female in the media, you discover you can become quite the target of. Also, I discovered that I was only the second female journalist or I was the first female journalist in 17 years to be asked to deliver the Andrew Orley lecture. The last one was Yarn Event. I mean, like, no pressure. <laughs> so it's just, it's almost with me and I don't know why I do this. Maybe it's because I'm a kid from the western suburbs of Sydney and I've always pushed back and thought, you know, a kid from the western suburbs can do this. And I got up and did it and it caused a few ripples. You know, a lot of people were very complimentary about it. And I had a number of publishers come to me and say, you've lived a pretty big life. You really should write your autobiography. And the deal was that I wasn't going to write it straight away, that I needed a few years to really work through it. I mean, given that the Andrew Ollie lecture was five or 6,000 words and that took me six months to get right, the idea of 100,000 words. That's daunting. Completely daunting. As it turns out, I wrote 186,000 words, which got edited back to 170,000. And the amazing reaction that I've had is that so many people who said they haven't bought books in years are reading it in two days. It's a hell of a rollercoaster of a ride that I've been on. It sure is. And I want to go on some moments of that rollercoaster with you. You mentioned just then that you did grow up in the western suburbs of Sydney and you didn't grow up wealthy. Now, what most people listening might not realise is that that is quite unusual in the Australian media. I would say that most of the people, not all, but most of the people that you see on your TV screen went to schools whose names we recognise, right? And we recognise them because they're private schools or elite schools. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh Well, Pete went to a private school and it wasn't until, well, I'll go back a bit. When when I left school, so I did year 12 and pretty much no one I knew had ever been to university, but I knew that I'd lived a pretty sheltered life growing up in Campbelltown. I wanted to get into journalism, but I didn't feel that I'd led enough of a life to really be able to add something when it comes to journalism. I, I felt like I'd I'd not experienced enough to warrant going after a cadetship. So mm. I decided that I wanted to travel and I wanted to go overseas and feel uncomfortable and fall in love with the wrong boy in a Moroccan cafe and, <laughs> you know, sort of struggle to make ends meet in backpacker hostels and, and meet people that I never would have met growing up in Campbelltown. And then I wanted to come back and get a cadetship. But I thought I need shorthand and typing, which is what you needed back in those days going into journalism. So I went and did a one-year business college course at a business college in the city and I was meeting people I'd never met before and they came from everywhere. But first question I got asked is, so where did you grow up? Yeah. My answer was obviously Campbelltown. And I sort of noted the reaction on most of the girls' faces was, 
one of being uncomfortable. And then immediately the follow-up question was, oh, um, right, okay, so, so what school did you go to? And almost straight away, my first thought was, that's a weird question. There's only one high school in Campbelltown. Of course, <laughs> I went to Campbelltown High. And my second thought was, oh, you, you look like you think we can make the first answer better if I went to a school that you approve of. It's just like this incredible snobbery just smacked me in the face. And, of course, almost every girl at this business college was private school educated and I heard these conversations where this instant assessment was made of people by the school that they went to. And I never understood that. For me, school was just about education and community and a pathway to a job. And then I saw it really up close. And, you know, by the way, that never got in the way. And, in fact, in many ways, when I went for my first job at the end of business college, when I, by pure luck and happenstance, I happened to pick up the Sydney Morning Herald on a rainy Thursday, which is not a day that's well known for its um, job columns, and I went to the <laughs> women and girls employment section. Of course, it used to be divided into gender, and there under the letter D was a tiny three-line ad that said, Dolly Magazine is looking for a secretary stroke editorial assistant stroke girl Friday who is prepared to do absolutely anything. Phone Kathy on 699-3622. And I answered that ad and to this day it's still the only job that I've ever applied for. And a lot of people have asked me, you know, if you'd gone to uni, how different do you think your life would be? Well, for starters, I never would have seen that ad. And if I'd been private school educated, I would have been at university, but would I have also thought that I was too good to answer an ad like that? I mean, I don't know the answer to the question, but there's a good possibility I would have seen that as beneath me. Whereas what I saw screaming out of that tiny little ad was an opportunity to learn. And from the moment I got there, it was a tiny staff. I got to see everyone do their jobs. I learnt both from people who offered me opportunities and from people who I didn't think did their jobs very well. And somewhere deep in my subconscious, I remembered thinking, gee, that's not a very good way to run things. Every single day I went in there, I put my hand up for things that were well beyond not only my pay grade, but my job description. But I was the only one in the office, I was 19, that had been so recently a devourer of this magazine, of this teen Bible. And so I just knew a lot of stuff. And all of these women who mostly were in their 30s and 40s just said yes to everything that I suggested. And a couple of years later, I'd become editor and I didn't stab anyone in the back. <laughs> it was just the right people left at the right times. And I worked out early on, if I just put my head down and worked really hard and listened to my gut instincts, which is what I've done my entire career, it's amazing where that can take you. I'm going to ask a question that I am going to hazard a guess you're going to find hard to answer. You became editor of Dolly at 21 years old. You were hugely successful and you were innovative in that role. Other than working really hard, and I have no doubt you were an incredibly hard worker then as you are now, 
What made you so good at it? I think growing up in the Western suburbs, taking nothing for granted, understanding the way that teenagers devoured that magazine and understanding what it was that made people stop on a page. And also when I took over the magazine, I thought in many ways they were really underestimating the intelligence and the smarts of young women. And I also felt it was trying to protect in a somewhat misguided way what young women are capable of being told and making them part of the conversation. So reader involvement was very important to me. I read every letter that came in. I listened to the feedback. I can look back now and I can just see that I just had a talent for being one of our readers and responding to that, but also really respecting them. I also, having been bullied at school, I was very aware of building a supportive culture. And also when you've had someone really believe in you and your talents at a very young age and in your head you're thinking, just a few years ago I was a reader of this magazine, why does that person believe in me so much? And I didn't spend too much time thinking about that because I didn't know the answer to it. But when you know what it feels like to be supported like that and have someone believe in you, I decided that I have to make sure that I don't waste that opportunity and that I allow other young women to know what that feels like. I was really passionate about supporting other young women and building other young women up. And so I ended up with this young, growing team around me over the course of the time that I was there, many of whom, when Kerry Packer came and headhunted me to take me over to Clio, I took half the team with me because I'd built up this incredible, talented team. I'm a great believer in strong, supportive cultures. So I think it was sort of multi-layered, the reason why it worked. Can you tell me your best or it might be your worst Kerry Packer story? I had nothing but really great interactions with Kerry. Um, When you've almost tripled the circulation of Dolly and he comes looking for you to to come across and run Cleo, it's amazing. You've already won him over long before you've even met. I write in the book the story of being invited out to lunch with Kerry after meeting his number two, a guy called Trevor Kennedy, who only very recently passed away. And Trevor ran all of the magazines. And Trevor said, Kerry really wants to meet you. And I had no desire whatsoever to meet Kerry Packer. I was very happy at Dolly. I didn't want to move. I just wanted to ride the wave of this success and supporting young women and all of that. But I just thought, can I really say no to lunch? with Kerry Packer. And so I agreed to meet at a restaurant address I was given down near Darling Harbour. But when I turned up at that address, I discovered there was no restaurant at that address. In fact, it was just before Darling Harbour was being done up for the bicentenary. It was a swamp. And the address I was given was actually an old bit of tarmac that led down to the Darling Harbour swamp. But sitting there instead of a restaurant was the whirring blades attached to the Channel 9 
helicopter ready and waiting, I discovered, to whisk me down to Mr Packer's summer residence at Palm Beach. Oh, my gosh, it's like a movie. So you'll have to read the book to hear the full story because I won't be able to do it justice because, it, you know, I've, I've written in meticulous detail what happened over the course of that lunch. You know, that included Jamie, as he was then, Packer, coming up from the beach you know, this very good-looking young guy in his board shorts turning up and us being introduced and Kerry telling him how he was bringing me across to edit Cleo and I tried to tell him otherwise but that didn't go down terribly well and meeting Gretel <laughs> as well who is still a very dear friend of mine to this day because Gretel ended up coming and working for me at Cleo. But negotiating a wage deal with Kerry Packer on the terrace of his Palm Beach summer house. As you would be aware, I went on to accept his offer of a job at Clio and the first thing I did was get rid of the centrefold. And so this was big news and Ray Martin had me on his show on the Monday morning that my first issue went on sale. Now, my understanding was that Kerry knew I was dropping the centrefold, but Kerry had been overseas a lot in those first few months of me taking over Cleo, Trevor was completely aware I was dropping the centrefold. And just to give you some idea of how long ago this was, I put in my first issue what I called the centrefold to end all, all centrefolds. And they were dead sexy shots of a dead sexy Mel Gibson in better times on many levels <laughs> uh, that were taken by Bruce Weber. So, my first issue had the last Cleo centrefold. Unfortunately, I didn't realise that Kerry had just got back from the States and he was watching his newly minted Cleo editor, who he owned, on his midday show, which he also owned, on the Nine Network, which he also owned, and I was telling Kerry Packer live on air that I had dropped his centrefold, which... Again, in the book, I describe exactly the phone call that came in the green room the moment I got off air and me going back and confronting Trevor, trying to find out why Kerry was incandescent with rage. And again, you'll have to read the book to find out why he was so incandescent with rage. But had I known the reason why he didn't want the centrefold dropped... I don't know I would have ever had the courage to do it. Lisa, you and your husband, Peter, who you've mentioned a couple of times, both have big and public careers and you also have three kids together. And I want to know how you make that work together because... I think there is a bit of a assumption amongst young women that there's got to be a lead career and a follower career. How have you made that balance of responsibilities work? Um, look, Jamila, I'd love to say that there's a science to it, but I would say the bedrock of that balance has come from, and it's kind of hilarious that I should use this term given there's a political party called this, and that is family first, <laughs> <laughs> which for whom I do not vote. It's a, it's a lowercase family <laughs> yes, first situation. Exactly. 
when you've come to having a profile later in life, I mean, nothing I've ever done has been motivated by wanting a profile. It's always come from loving the work that I do and being very aware of opportunities that I've been given. And it's always been the work that has motivated me. It just so happens that more recently on television, the work that I do comes with a profile. But I am so glad that I was well into my 30s before I ever sat in front of the microscope that is a TV camera in the way I earn my living and, and do my job. Because there's a lot about that level of fame that can misguide you in the way you proceed as a career. There is that whole movement that exists in social media of being famous for the sake of being famous, you know, led by the Kardashians. But for me, it's always been about the work. And for Pete, it's always been about the work. And it's always been about family is what matters. You know, people in your work life come and go. That said, many of my dearest friends have come from work situations, mostly from my magazine background. That's where for my adult friendships, a lot of my closest friends outside of my school friends, who I'm still very close to, have come from my magazine days, from those really team-led environments. TV is a much more precarious basis for friendships because people go in and out of fashion. And You know, while I've always loved my TV work and I've had great relationships with colleagues, I find that it's my magazine days where I've formed the closest long-lasting bonds. To get back to your original question, as long as you are motivated by the work itself and doing good work and that you realise that true reality lies in those you go home to and your wider group of long-standing friendships, that's how you deal with it because you know what's real and what's not and you know what's true and what's just a narrative that gets built up by others who don't know the truth. How did you deal initially with that spotlight that came with breakfast television? Because it does seem to me that the spotlight there is from the rest of the media is brighter than on anything else. People are so interested in not just your work, which is something, a theme you keep coming back to, the doing of the work. People are interested in that, but it's almost secondary to being interested in in you. How did that sit with you when that started to happen? Going back to, you know, first doing television, I was kind of drip-fed into a public profile. When I was doing Dolly and Cleo, you know, I would do things like Ray Martin's Midday Show or a grab for a current affair or even a breakfast TV appearance. So I sort of, I I got a sense of what it was like. And then when I was on maternity leave with our second son, I was approached by Brian Walsh at Foxtel, who was starting up another incarnation of Beauty and the Beast, which, you know, my mother used to watch when I was a little kid. So, you know, it was only on 
Foxtel, which, you know, was a very small subscription service at the time. And I can remember on the very first day I was sitting on the panel with, you know, TV luminaries, long-standing female icons on television, women like um, Maureen Duval, who used to have a morning TV show. She was a former Miss Australia and a woman called Anne Wills, who to this day still has the greatest number of Logies over the course of years. I think she got 19 or something. Far out. And Jeannie Little. And I was sitting there and Brian came down on the floor on this first day. This is back in 1996. The Beast was a guy called Stan Zamanik, well-known shock jock, but, you know, only done radio, never done television. Brian came down on the floor and he said to us all, how are you all feeling? Jeannie... Maureen and Anne, you know, delighted, chatty, talkative, over the moon, glad to be back on TV. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Brian. And Stan and I sat there mute, couldn't say a word. We were terrified. And he looked at both of us and said, this is television, you know, big it up. We both admitted to just how scared we were. And I hope you can bleep this, but I'll give you a direct quote. (laughs) He looked at us both and said, oh, for sake, get over yourself. It's only television. And I've got to say, for my first day on TV with this thing of looking down a barrel of a camera and pretending there's a person there, it was the best advice I could have ever been given. And it's advice that I take with me Every single time I walk into a TV studio, it's only television. As long as you are taking your responsibility of being truthful and doing good journalism or making people smile, as long as you're doing that, the rest of it is only television. You are not saving lives. You are not curing cancer. You're not saving people out of a burning building. There are many, many, many more important jobs that are out there. In fact, most jobs are in many ways more important, but I take the journalism seriously. And if I can do that and people enjoy watching it, then that's as good as I can do. So when I got to breakfast television, I, you know, got this opportunity to go to Sunrise. And again, I was just a guest commentator every week. And then the executive producer asked me to fill in for Mel Doyle a few times. And that was really my greatest learning curve for Breakfast TV because Mel and Koshy at that stage, we're talking 2003, 2004, Sunrise was killing the Today Show. And I saw both how the executive producer, Adam Boland, who was the real genius behind the Sunrise brand, how he worked and how he spoke about the audience and how respectful he was of the audience and how this was their show and we are only there Mm. to facilitate their show. And I watched Mel Doyle in particular and how she handled the spotlight. And for Mel, like for me and how I've proceeded in this business, it's all about family because that's where the reality is. And if you haven't got that, the rest of this is meaningless. So when I was offered the Today Show, in 2007, and Mel knows this, I've, I've told her personally and I write about it in the book, how much of the way Mel was dealing with this intense spotlight of fame that comes with breakfast television, how I took that into 
dealing with the Today Show. Lisa, we are tight for time and I have so many more questions, which is why people are going to need to (laughs) read those 100,000 plus words of your book. But I do want to finish with one question, which is through all this time, whether it's on breakfast TV, whether it's working in magazines, at the Huffington Post where you were for a while on the project now, you would have covered countless news stories. What is one of them that has stayed with you and crossed over from work life to start to shape who you are in your whole self? It's hard to go past a phone call that I got early last year from a young woman called Brittany Higgins. I finished the book with this chapter of what it was like to get that phone call and to go into the background of what she claimed had happened in Parliament House and then meeting with her and really thoroughly researching that story and getting to know the young woman and what a brave call it was for her to go public with such an intensely personal story as that, but for her to be motivated by change. And you only have to look at the marches that happened exactly four weeks later on the 15th of March. So our story, Brittany called me in early January. We researched the story for four or five weeks. We approached the Prime Minister's office to get their response We put the story to air and the outrage around the country with the way the government dealt with that story, the denial, which lasts to this day. And you only have to look at the women's marches around the country to see the effect that that brave young woman had combined with the bravery of Grace Tame. And one of my greatest joys over the past year has been to witness the extraordinary bond between those two women and the strength they have given all of us. And I do talk about my own sexual assault in the book, the strength that they have given all of us that we have to do everything we can to stamp this out to shine lights into corners that have been in the dark for far too long in this country. Lisa, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Thank you for your beautiful book, It Wasn't Meant to Be Like This. And for those of you listening, Lisa is not exaggerating. I have touched on merely a teeny tiny part of what is contained in those pages. There is so much more to read about this extraordinary woman's life. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing a bit of it with me today. Thank you, Jamila. Thank you for listening to my chat with Lisa Wilkinson. Her autobiography is called It Wasn't Meant to Be Like This and it's available now from all good bookstores. And you know what? I bet some of the bad bookstores are selling it too. Don't go away. The weekend list is coming right up. Welcome to The Weekend List and welcome to Tate McGregor back again, jumping into the seat because she knows I love her recommendations. Oh, I hope you do. Otherwise, I'm just talking smack every week. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, tell us what you have been reading, watching, doing, listening to. Give me something to do this weekend. 
Okay, I'm a bit late to this party, but I only just got around to watching Encanto, the new Disney Plus film. It's <gasps> Disney Pixar. I love Disney Pixar. Plonk me down in front of Ratatouille. I'm a happy girl. This one is about a family called the Madrigal family. They're a family with unique powers that live in the mountains of Colombia in a magical place called Encanto. And essentially, there's this rite of passage for this family that when they reach a certain age, a door appears in their magical house that opens and reveals a special power that they possess. So there's a sister that's super strong. There's another one that can have like supersonic hearing. Another creates flowers. There's a brother who can shapeshift, an uncle with like premonitions, a mother who can heal people through the power of food. But the main character, Mirabelle, she's the central character of the movie. And when she gets around to this rite of passage, the door locks her out and she's left with no power, which alienates her from her family. But then the magic around Encanto starts fading. People start losing hope. All of her family start, uh, all of their powers start fading along with it. So she takes on the mission to save the town and bring back hope. And it's just such a feel good movie. It's all about like coming together and how you don't need to be super special to belong. You know, and it just makes you feel good about yourself at the end. Have you seen it? I feel like you oh, would have seen it. Mate, I have a six-year-old, so I've <laughs> seen it roughly 7,000 times already. Uh, the other day we drove down to the beach, took us two hours. We just played the soundtrack on loop the entire time. We didn't do anything else. Uh, the soundtrack is by Lin-Manuel Miranda, yes, who is the guy so behind good. Hamilton, and it is absolutely extraordinary. I absolutely second Tate's recommendation. I'm going to go in such a wildly different direction that there is no segue <laughs> to, my, to my recommendation. Um, I want to recommend if you didn't watch it on Wednesday at lunchtime, Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame addressed the National Press Club in Canberra. The National Press Club holds these speeches every week. They're for journalists. They usually bring together um, politicians or policymakers or influencers, not-for-profit directors and the rest. Some of those speeches just pass without a whole lot of notice. This was not one of those speeches. Uh, Higgins and Tame both addressed the Press Club for about 15 minutes each before taking questions. They were absolutely extraordinary. I didn't want his sympathy as a father. I wanted him to use his power as prime minister. I wanted him to wield the weight of his office and drive change in the party and our parliament and out into the country. I'm not interested in words anymore. I want to see action. The timing, I think, was particularly critical. It came just 24 hours after the parliament apologised to victim survivors of sexual harassment and abuse inside Canberra's Parliament House, an event to which Brittany Higgins was invited to 24 hours in advance after she oh, wow. complained that she hadn't been invited. These are two really moving speeches. They are beautifully written speeches. They will make you angry as well as impassioned at the same time. You'd be able to find them on the ABC website. They're also on YouTube. Quick Google will get you there very, very quickly. I really implore people to listen to these two speeches in full. It won't take much of your time and it will stay with you for a very, very, very long time. His language last year was shocking and at times admitted a bit offensive. But his words wouldn't matter if his actions had measured up, then or since. And as you will have all heard in our conversation just recently with Lisa Wilkinson, she says that the interview that she has done that has stayed with her 
uh, has made the biggest personal impression on her was interviewing Brittany Higgins 12 months ago when that story was first broken. So this is not a passing issue. This is something people are going to stay loud and stay angry about. You see me here standing tall, if a little bit broken, standing on the shoulders of giants, side by side with Brittany, side by side with all of you, together, making change, making history, but above all else, making noise. Tate, it is a day for jumbly up and down roller coaster of emotions in our recommendations. Can you take me back to some brightness and lightness? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so this week, Splendor in the Grass announced their official sideshows. And if you're itching for some live music like I am, some very exciting international acts are coming up and down the East Coast and your July is going to get very, very busy. It's actually the largest sideshow announcement in Splendor history. So there's over, I think there's 21 artists touring outside the usual Byron Festival. So let me run you through my hit list because there's a lot in there. So I've discussed him on the show before, Still Woozy. He's uh, an experimental indie pop DIY artist and he's playing some really small rooms. So I'm super excited for that. We've also got Holly Humberston. She's an English teen. Um, she played at the Brit Awards this week. You've got Jack Harlow, uh, who you'd know from What's Poppin' or his songs with Lil Nas X. He's been going viral for his live shows and he's also going to be playing some small events use than what he can sell out. Who else? Wet Leg, they're two girls from the Isle of Wight. They're really cool, been creating some serious buzz. You've got hip hop, like H, Tierra Whack. You've got some Grammy alumni, like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and Muramasa. And then people with bonkers shows like Oliver Tree and Youngblood. So if any of those tickle your fancy, I'm getting you across it now because tickets go on sale on Monday to the general public, Monday, February 14th. And I reiterate, these artists are playing really small venues that you'll never be able to catch them at in that capacity again. If you're up for some intimate live music, you got to book your tickets this week. Otherwise, you're not going to catch it. So uh, yeah, you can head to Secret Sounds for all of those details. And I just can't wait. I'm going to have such a busy busy July. It's going to be awesome. Consider that a public service announcement from Tate to make sure that you get in fast with your tickets. I'm also recommending music, but of a very different nature. I have been struggling to sleep in the heat of this summer and you know, climate change folks, it's going to continue to be a problem. I am going to be too hot at night for a long time to come unless our governments get their acts together. In the meantime, you can help yourself sleep the way I am with comforting sounds. I have been someone who quite likes white noise to help me fall asleep, like the sound of a vacuum cleaner or the sound of rain, whatever it might be. But I have found a new favourite, which is a bit more musical. If you go onto Spotify and you look for sleeping music or relaxing music, you will come across comforting sounds tells you what it is on the box. There's sort of like some green leaves in the background and some white text. It is beautiful. It is like sleeping in a magical, musical, chime-filled rainforest. And I am finding it's putting me to sleep really, really quickly, as well as calming me down within a couple of minutes when I go to bed, despite the heat. So based on no science whatsoever, I think it's going to work for all of you. And it's coming to you with no charge from me. You can just go listen to it on Spotify. <laughs> oh my 
goodness. Oh my goodness. Good sleep for free. You're joking. You're joking. This is what we deliver here at the Weekend Briefing. Tate, thank you for jumping into the recommendations hot seat. Thank you as always for your wonderful recommendations. Folks, that's it for the Weekend Briefing. If you would like to make sure you never miss an episode, then you should subscribe. You can do that in the listener app now or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, if you want to leave us a rating and a review, they have to be a nice rating and a nice review. Otherwise, you shouldn't bother. If you would like to do that, then it will help other people to find the podcast. The briefing will be back bright and early on Monday morning with the latest headlines straight to your headphones at 6am. Thank you. Listener.